from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, good afternoon and welcome to this Wednesday edition of Washington Watch. I am Jody Heiss, the Senior Vice President here at the Family Research Council and honored to be filling in for Tony today, who is at the NRB convention taking place in Nashville, Tennessee. But I want to thank each of you for making Washington Watch part of your day. And I can tell you we have quite a great program lined up for you today. Some of the highlights that we'll be covering. First of all, when Congress returns from a recess week, uh, in fact, one week from today, they're going to come back to face a very tight deadline to avert a partial government shutdown. When the House returns from recess on February 28th, there will be only three legislative days until certain federal agencies run out of funding. The impact of a government shutdown will be widespread and devastating to our service members, their families, and DOD civilians who work every day in support of our national security. Well, you can feel the pressure mounting all over the place. That was Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh yesterday during a Defense Department press briefing. So what options are going to be on the table as Congress returns? And among all those options, will they address our nation's $34 trillion debt? Well, Alabama Congressman Robert Adderhold, who serves on the House Appropriations Committee, Appropriations Committee, he will be joining me here in just a couple of moments uh, to tell us what we can expect in the coming days. And then we have a Christian family in Indiana who has appealed to the Supreme Court following a lower court's decision allowing the state of Indiana to separate them from their son because they will not use pronouns or a name that conflicts with his biological gender. As a father, I believe one of my main goals is to keep my children safe, and I can't do that when the state comes into our house and takes our kid because we can't in good conscience affirm his transgender ideology. Well, I'll tell you, this story will shake you to the core, and well, it should. That was Jeremy Cox sharing his story with the Indiana Family Institute. Man, what a kind of precedent could be set in a case like this for families all throughout the country? Well, I will be talking with Joe Davis, the legal counsel for Beckett, which is the organization representing that family. We'll be joined with him a little bit later in the program. And as I discussed yesterday, this week Family Research Council published an update to its report on hostility against churches in the United States. And friends, these attacks are on the rise. In fact, 2023 more than doubled the already high numbers that we saw in 2022. Well, I'll be talking with the author of that report, FRC's Ariel Del Turco, about what's behind this rise in hostility and how Christians should respond to it all. And then how much can the rise in attacks on churches be ascribed to the rhetoric coming from the left? Well, I don't really know for sure, but I can say this for sure, that they're at it again. They continue to stoke fears of Christian nationalism and a theocracy. The difference between where we've been in the past with Christian nationalism and uh, religion influencing conservatives is that they have an actual plan, right? This is, we're talking about bullet points to make this a top priority in administration. 
which is why we're kind of drilling down on specifics of what this could possibly mean. Friends, you just got to hang on to hear uh, this part of the program today. It is, it's incredible, and we're going to hear more of it. That was Politico's Heidi Prisbola, who co-authored a piece that published yesterday with the headline, Trump Allies Prepare to Infuse Christian Nationalism in Second Administration. Wow. Well, given the Biden administration's willingness to literally pour gasoline on this already lit fire, what can we make of what is clearly a coordinated effort to silence and intimidate Christians? Regent University professor Dr. A.J. Nolte will join me a little later in the program to discuss this. So a lot to cover. You don't want to miss it. But if you do, you can always catch this at TonyPerkins.com as well as a host of other archive programs and multiple resources. You don't want to miss any of it. You can, again, check it out at TonyPerkins.com. All right, let's jump into the program today. When the House of Representatives returns to Washington next week from recess that they're on this week, they're going to be staring down two government funding deadlines, one on March the 1st, the other March the 8th. And given the reality The reality being that the House and the Senate combined have yet to pass a single fiscal year 2024 spending bill. Uh, The House has passed some, but the Senate hasn't. So between the two of them, nothing. So what can we expect before that first deadline of March 1st approaches? Well, joining me now to discuss this is Congressman Robert Adderhold, who serves on the House Appropriations Committee, and he represents the 4th Congressional District of Alabama. Congressman Adderholt, always great to see you. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Well, Jody, it's good to be with you, and uh, thanks for having me on this afternoon. Well, it's always an honor to have you. Listen, before we jump into this, just um, uh, if you can give us a 30,000-foot perspective, your, your overall assessment of what you anticipate in the spending negotiations when you come back. Well, you correctly uh, sort of summed up what's going on. We'll go. We'll come back. Uh, and right now, we're scheduled to come back next Wednesday, and, and uh, we will have all of these bills that uh, will be still sitting on our plate because, as you so rightly said, uh, the House and Senate have failed to pass any of the appropriation bills and their completion, and uh, even more so, we have a March first deadline for four of the preparation bills, military construction, the uh, agricultural subcommittee uh, preparation, the energy and water, and then the transportation. Uh, Those four bills are going to expire March 1st. And uh, as you well know, we are approaching March 1st uh, very quickly. And we are at this point not, do not have the, our ducks in a row to pass those four appropriation bills. And if we do not, then we will have a shutdown on March 1st. Now, obviously, you know, there's a lot of pros and cons and a lot of things that can be said, whether or maybe we should just shut down the government. But obviously, if we can't avoid shutting down the government, uh, I personally think it's best uh, just because you do have a lot of unintended consequences. Also, the administration is in charge of make when we shut down they're in charge then and they can make it very painful on americans to say look at what the republicans are doing and they're wanting to 
shut down the government. And so uh, they will make it as painful as possible. So if we can't avoid this, but at the same time, Jody, as you know, you've been there, we've served together many years and you know how it is. We're trying to get as many wins, wins as possible. And we have a very close majority uh, in the, in the, in the house closer than I think you ever had when uh, you were serving with, with us in the house. We are two votes in the majority right now, and it is so difficult to try to get uh, our Republicans all on the same page. And furthermore, it's been very difficult to try to certainly get the Democrats to go along with us. And so, uh, therefore, they're sitting back and not wanting us to pass the appropriation bills and because they want to get everything they want. We're just asking for something. We're in the majority, and if we could just get a few wins, we understand, I understand, I think most Republicans understand that with a two-seat majority, we're not going to get everything that we want, but at least we need to get something. And that's really the uh, crossroads we're at right now. Uh, you know Mike Johnson as well as I do. We both served with him. He is a true conservative. He's someone who wants to do the right thing and uh you know, I want to do everything I can to back him up as we go forward in these negotiations. Well, there's no doubt these are very difficult circumstances to work in. And yeah, the, the majority was never that thin when I was there. It was thin, but never down to two. Uh, as, as I understand it, uh, Congressman Adderhold, as, as, as I look at this, there's basically three primary options. There's, oh, well, you, you have the government shutdown. But beyond that, there's, there could be a short-term funding bill. There could be a CR, a continuing resolution for the entire year that would cut 1% spending. Or there could maybe be some other compromise package mm -hmm. that uh, a number on our side of the aisle probably would be frustrated with. Uh, are there any other options out there that are legitimate? No. What you've summed it up quite well. And, and, and quite honestly, if we could uh, get a... If we could get a uh, some time, I'm, I'm talking, you know, another week or so for some negotiations, and we could get some uh, resolution to some of these issues. I could support a CR. I mean, a CR is not an ideal situation, and I, and I don't want to, you know, make a lot of the fact that we'll just pass another CR because we've passed a lot of them. But if I knew that we could get some wins especially on these social issues. And I know you and I, of course, we served uh, on the, the VAT team uh, as uh, as co-chairs uh, when you were in the House. And as I know you feel like I do, we've got to get some wins on these family value issues. And if we could get some of those, I can vote for another CR if I know that there is a win in sight. But it's going to be very difficult for members of the Republican caucus to vote for another CR if we're just kicking the can down the road and we get there and there is no uh, wins at the end of the day. Absolutely. Well, if I can't switch topics for you, we've only got a couple of minutes left here. I wish we could go on with more of this because you are such a... Uh, a wealth of information and a leader on appropriations. But switching topics, this month we, we've had on the program a missionary from Nicaragua to discuss the oppression that Christian pastors are facing in that country. And you are leading a congressional effort to help these pastors. Uh, quickly tell us about that. 
Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I'm so glad you had uh, the pastor on there. I met him back uh, during the week of the National Prayer Breakfast. He came up to me and introduced himself. We have a mutual friend here in Alabama, and they he got us in touch with each other. And uh, basically, I know that you've heard the reports and a lot of your listeners have, but uh, they were just conducting a, like, Nicaragua, and the government had panicked when that many people came out to, a, I guess, what you would call a service where they were preaching the gospel. I see you've got the on the screen there, you see how many people were there. A lot of healing took place, and they have put in jail a lot of these pastors. They have kicked a lot of the American missionaries out of the country. Tell us quickly about your letter. We've only got about 30 seconds. Yes. Tell us about your yes. letter, yeah, 30 seconds. You. The letter that uh, we have do, we are sending out to the ambassador uh, from Nicaragua to, United, to the United States and telling him how disappointed we are in this. We have got, I've lost count of many members we have got signed on, but we've got several on the Senate to sign it, bipartisan, bicameral, to say this is unacceptable, that this should not happen, and Americans uh, are are very upset of what's going on, and we are hopefully getting this attention and get these pastors released. Congressman Robert Adderhold from Alabama, thank you so much for your leadership. Thank you for coming on Washington Watch, and our prayers are with you in all of Congress as you return. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. All right, friends, coming up after the break, we have an Indiana couple that has appealed to the Supreme Court to bring their son home after state officials have moved and removed him over gender issues. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. 
Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Well, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jody Heiss, your host. An honor to be sitting in today for Tony. All right, our country has seen a record number of illegal border crossings under President Biden's watch. We all are keenly aware of that. And we are putting together a petition to, that will be going to House leadership, urging them to use all the leverage they possibly have to help stop the flow of illegal immigrants, drugs, human trafficking, and all that's coming across our nation's southern border. And we're asking you to join us and sign a petition. There's a couple of options for you to do so. Uh, first of all, you can go to a website, frcaction.org slash border, frcaction.org slash border. Or you can simply text the word border to 67742. Uh, please join us with this and we will be delivering those petitions, hopefully with tons of your signatures. So thank you in advance for helping us out. All right, we have a Christian family in Indiana that has appealed to the Supreme Court after a state court allowed the Indiana officials to remove their child from their home due to the child's desire to identify as a different gender. According to court documents, in 2019, the son of Jeremy and Mary Cox, who happen to be a faithful Catholic couple, uh, their son told them that he identifies as a girl. Well, the parents recognized their son was suffering from some underlying mental health concerns, and they scheduled some appointments to get help and to provide the support that he needed. Well, two years later, Indiana state officials investigated the couple and eventually removed their son from their home, not for, for uh, because they did not refer to him with pronouns or a name that was inconsistent with its biology. Folks, listen to this. Their child was removed because the parents refused to use improper pronouns, and the child was taken. Well, now the lower courts have rejected the Cox's appeal. And so the question is, what's next? If the Supreme Court does not take this test, this case, uh, what will this mean for families all across the country? Joining me now to discuss this is Joe Davis. He's legal counsel at Beckett, which is the group representing the parents in this case. Joe, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you so much for coming and joining us. Thank you for having me. 
All right. Well, listen, I gave kind of a broad overview, if you will, of Jeremy and Mary Cox and the, the legal situation they find themselves in. Can you fill us in on any details that that I'm missing? Yeah, no, I think you offered a great summary. I mean, this is really one of the most chilling incursions on religious liberty and parental rights that one can really imagine in this country. So, as you said, a few years ago, the state of Indiana launched an investigation into Mary and Jeremy Cox. Why did it do, why did it do that? It's because they, informed by their religious beliefs, they declined to call their, their son by pronouns and a name that were different from his biological sex. The state then took the child away, removed him from his loving parents' home, and imposed a gag order on the parents, preventing them, uh, you know, in their visitation hours with their own child, from discussing their religious beliefs about sex and gender. And this is really an extreme, egregious violation of their rights as parents and as Americans. And so Mary and Jeremy are now asking the Supreme Court to step in and protect uh, them and protect other parents from losing custody over their children because of their religious beliefs. And hopefully that will happen. Uh, now, ha has the state or anyone else found any kind of abuse associated with the Coxes towards her son? Or is this solely just on the reality that they use wrong pronouns? They have not. And not only have they not found uh, abuse, they actually, uh, after investigating Mary and Jeremy, they they unsubstantiated, that's the legal term, unsubstantiated the allegations of abuse and neglect that, that had originally been brought. So this really is about uh, this disagreement over gender identity and the right way to approach that. The state simply does not agree with Mary and Jeremy's Cox, Jeremy Cox's religious beliefs on, the, on this issue. And that's so really a chill. So, yeah, let me ask you this, Joe. So is it fair to say that the state considers the refusal to use pronouns as abuse? I mean, there's got to be a reason. You don't just come in and take a child away without a reason. I mean, there's got to be abuse. There's got to be something uh, involved. Does the state consider pronoun use or the refusal thereof to be abusive? Well, what they said was uh, that the, the son had to be put in a home where he would be uh, accepted for who she is, is, what, is how the state put it. Um, you know, Mary and Jeremy's son was, was struggling with some mental health issues and eating disorder. They wanted to, uh, they were ready and willing, like any loving parent would be, uh, to help him get better. What they were not willing to do was affirm his identifying as a girl, and that was ultimately the problem for the state here. Well, yeah, I think this is uh, alarming on so many fronts. Uh, just horrifying. Alarming is not even the right word. But the fact that it's happening in a red state like Indiana is just, again, uh, uh, disturbing in every way. And the potential precedent that could be established by this case is enormous. Uh, in about a minute that we have left here, lay out the potential scenarios of what this, the precedent that this could establish. Sure, it would be a very alarming precedent, as you said. I mean, right now, if if the Supreme Court allows it to happen here, it's it's sure sure to multiply in other in other states. I mean, if it, if it can happen in Indiana, it can happen anywhere. And in fact, there are other states that right now are passing laws or have laws on the books that encourage you know, children who identify as another gender to, to come to the state if they're not able to get gender-affirming care at home, to use the language that, that the, these states would use. So this is an important issue. It's only becoming more important as every day passes. 
And it's it's really uh, critical that the court steps in. Well, Joe Davis, I cannot say thank you enough and all of you at Beckett for stepping up and for defending this family. Uh, because in so doing, it's not just this family, it's families all across our country that, that you're defending. And the right, it's, it's a religious liberty case. I mean, a parental rights case, there's so much wrapped up in all of this, and we deeply appreciate it. We're going to be keeping a pulse on it. I'm sure we'll be talking with you more as this goes along. Joe Davis, thank you so much for joining us on Washington Watch. Thanks for your time. All right, friends, coming up, the author of FRC's updated report on acts of hostility against churches is going to be joining me to discuss in greater detail what is going on with this drastic increase against people of faith and churches. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. It's coming your way right after the break. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroicfaith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroicfaith. Welcome, welcome back. Hope you're having a great day. I'm Jody Heiss, your host. Glad to have you joining us today on Washington Watch. All right, yesterday I discussed Family Research Council's newly released update to its report on incidents of hostility against churches. And the numbers are absolutely staggering. 436 acts of hostility against churches from January to November of 2023 alone. That's more than double all the numbers in 2022. And look, we, we understand as believers that the Bible warns us to prepare for hostile times, that hostility against the church is going to come. And of course, the scripture also assures us that God is going to be with us 
and guide us through these trials. But as Christians, it's important for us to keep our eyes open to what's going on. Well, joining me now to break down all these numbers is the author of the report, Arielle Del Turco. She's the director of the Center for Religious Liberty here at the Family Research Council. Ariel, welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to have you. Thank you for having me, Jody. Well, let's begin with some of the hard numbers. There's a lot of information in this uh, incredibly detailed report that you've put forth. What are some of the uh, hard numbers that stand out the most? Yeah, so you hit the big one, uh, which is that we had 436 acts of hostility just from uh, January through November of 2023, which was the reporting period. And that was well over double what it had been the year before um, in 2022, where we just had about 195. Um, And It's the second consecutive year where we saw almost a doubling in the numbers. So from 2021 to 2022, we saw nearly double. And then again, from 2022 to 2023, we saw nearly double that. So it's almost an unsustainable uh, rate of growth for these incidents. And this is something that should seriously be of concern to Americans who care about religious freedom, care about Americans' ability to be able to go to their church or house of worship without feeling that they are going to be targets of some crime, that they're unwelcome in their community. Uh, We see this as a very alarming trend. Well, absolutely, and I saw in there that that your your report actually goes back to 2018, and from from 2023 back to 18, it's like an 800 percent increase. I mean, we're not just seeing a rise; we are seeing a, a launching uh, that's taking place of uh, acceleration. And I know what you just said. People want to be secure when they go to church. I know this is a huge report. And any attack on a church is a terrible thing. But what are some of the more egregious incidents that jump out at you as to what's happened in churches across the country? Well, we unfortunately saw many incidents where churches were completely destroyed, uh, mainly by arson attacks. Um, A church would be either deeply damaged or almost entirely destroyed. Uh, But some of the incidents that stick out to me most are actually uh, when a church has just been ransacked, where someone breaks into a church, uh, they might rip uh, Bibles out of pews, like uh, tear the Bibles apart, just destroy anything within their grasp in a church sanctuary, tearing down crosses. Um, all of these acts are, are just so ugly, and the church is that it happens to, they're always so astonished. Uh, but often we see pastors react with uh, just a call to prayer for the victim uh, because we know that this is a, a spiritual attack in some way, that people are reacting out of some sort of uh, irrational anger or hatred. Um, and sadly, we see this far too often. Uh, so for churches, we really need to be thinking about how can we be responsible to these attacks? How can we be preparing for them? Um, And really, what what do we even think about them? Because so many churches are completely caught off guard, uh, rightfully so. We should feel safe and secure in the United States um, with our our rights and our religious freedom um, and with law enforcement. And yet this is catching us by surprise more and more. Uh, So it's just a deeply concerning trend all around. Well, when you see these type of numbers, the drastic increase that's taking place, it has to indicate something bigger 
a bigger problem in our society. And I think many people look at this report and they have to be asking why. Why are we seeing this? Uh, does, did you find anything to indicate what is the cause of this type of hostility? Well, it's very difficult. It's difficult to know what's going on in the human heart, and all of these incidents are are different. Uh, but one thing I think is just obvious to point to is just this collapse in societal respect for uh, religion and religious institutions, particularly churches. We see the mainstream media constantly uh, maligning religion, maligning uh, Christianity in particular. Uh, it's blamed in academia as being a source of oppression. Uh, for different minority groups. And so when you have all of these social forces building up, of course that's going to spill over um, in, in real-world effects. And some of the real-world effects are, are these attacks on churches that uh, people have less respect for, for church buildings themselves, and they feel more comfortable uh, using a church to express their anger at, to uh, walk by a church and throw a brick in a window, uh, or to uh, tear down a statue that's outside a church building. Uh, these just random acts of uh, hostility, of aggression uh, that we're seeing more and more, I think it reflects something bigger and it's just this overall uh, social collapse and respect for Christianity. Absolutely. Ariel Del Turco, thank you so much for this incredible report. In fact, people can get it. Uh, go to frc.org. You can find it. You can text the word CHURCH to 67742 to get it. You don't want to miss this. All right, coming up, part of what Ariel was just talking about, the left is at it again, blaming us for Christian nationalism. And that, of course, is just throwing gas on the fire against Christians. Dr. A.J. Nolte will join me right after the break. Stay tuned. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. 
You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us today on Washington Watch. I'm Jody Heiss, your host sitting in today for Tony, and we're honored to have you with us. All right. Yesterday, Politico, which is a Beltway Insider News website, uh, they published a story really stoking fear and fear of what I've already alluded to, Christian nationalism. Now, according to this narrative that they're pushing, the election of Donald Trump in November would unleash an army of Christian nationalists throughout the federal government and that their intent would be to install a theocracy. Now, listen, as, as crazy as that may sound, I can assure you that we should expect more of these type of stories as they, I, I believe they're representing a coordinated effort, uh, the purpose of which is to rally the left, but probably even more so, the purpose is to intimidate and silence Christians who embrace a biblical worldview individuals who reject the radical lurch to the left that we continue to see in our country's politics and culture. So what should we make of all of this, and how should we respond to it? Well, joining me now to discuss this is Dr. A.J. Nolte. He's Associate Professor at Regent University, and much of Dr. Nolte's Ph.D. dissertation research really dealt with this whole issue. He studied the topic of nationalism and faith. So, Dr. Nolte, welcome back to Washington Watch. Great to have you. Thanks, Jody. It's great to be here. Well, thank you so much. All right, look, before we dive in, let's let's step, step back and talk definitions. I think a lot of people are confused on what we're even discussing, what we mean by Christian nationalism. And I want to start with what the left claims Christian nationalism to be. Here's how filmmaker Rob Reiner defined it. Clip the five, idea please. is that America was a uh, uh, born as a white Christian nation, and these people are virulent about returning to that, and they'll do it at any means necessary, including and up to including violence. And we saw this happen uh, on January 6th in America. All right, listen, there's a lot there, but that's one definition that the left has. Um, how else do they define Christian nationalism? Well, it's interesting because the definition of Christian nationalism that you so often see from the left um, tends to be 
Uh, it tends to be a coat that is cut to fit uh, whatever it needs to fit at any given time. Um, but the probably the most widely spread definition of Christian nationalism is from a book by Taking America Back for God by two scholars named Perry and Whitehead. And what you find actually when you look into their, their data and the way they constructed their data is that they took six questions, which are generally good questions if you're trying to measure social conservatism, right? Those who, who favor, for example, uh, the idea that America, uh, that Christianity was important for the American founding, um, you know, more traditional ideas like prayer in school, opposition to abortion, same-sex marriage, and so on and so forth. These are really good measurements for social conservative attitudes. And they say these are measures for Christian nationalism. Um, so what you often find is that Christian nationalism is basically just what we would traditionally label as social conservatism, sort of relabeled. I would say Reiner, though, kind of gives the game away when he talks about white Christian nationalism, because another thing that you often see in the literature, um, to be fair, not in Perry and Whitehead, but in some of the other literature on this, is a conflation of white ethnic nationalism with Christian nationalism. Um, and so so I think there, there's a couple things going on, but a lot of the definition is actually uh, that the left is using kind of obscures things more than it actually clarifies. Well said. It, it does obscure things, and it does take basically just conservative Christians and redefine them to be what uh, the, the left portrays as a danger to democracy. And th there is a difference between Christian nationalism and Christian principles upon which right. our country was founded. And yes. so this creates a, 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 an issue, too, to where they're really bringing in the argument that if you hold to Christian principles, you are a Christian nationalist and you want to have a theocracy and force people to comply to Christianity or be punished. Am I, am I walking up the, the an accurate path there by saying it? Yes, and that, that certainly is the implication of that. Although, I want to uh, try a thought experiment with you here. Um, so imagine a situation in which a Republican president goes to a church, uh, a church that has been prominently associated with uh, Republican politics in the, in the past, on a federal holiday, and gives a speech where he talks about how New Testament principles ought to be the basis of uh, our politics here in America. Would the media label that as Christian nationalism, do you think? Absolutely. So what's interesting is when, would. yeah, I, I would agree with that. What's interesting is when Joe Biden went to Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is an African-American Baptist church in um, Atlanta, which has a long association with, with civil rights. Um, many Democratic leaders, including Senator Raphael Warnock, uh, have been associated with that church. And over the Martin Luther King holiday, I believe this was in 2023, uh, he gave a a speech there talking about how New Testament principles of, of peace and justice ought to underlie what we do as Americans, that somehow was not considered Christian nationalism. So it, it's interesting, even in the sense of when we're we're talking about uses of the label Christian nationalism, um, it kind of depends on who is using the New Testament and whether the media outlets in question like the use to which the New Testament is being put. So again, it's not a clear inconsistent, it's not even clear and consistent about the idea that any use of the New Testament for political purposes is Christian nationalism. Excellent point. I would like to uh, find that clip uh, of that that uh, that you're referring to. That uh, could be a powerful tool. Uh, you you've conducted a ton of research, but but a lot of research specifically on the uh, how the left in other countries 
have used fear of religion as a political motivator. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. And, and do you think that's kind of behind the scenes, what's going on here, the same tactics at played now? Yes. So one of, my, one of the countries that I researched for my dissertation was Turkey. Um, and when you look at Turkish secularism, which, you know, many people in the United States have a, a favorable view of, but, you know, as a scholar, I'm looking at what did they actually do and, and why and how did it work, right? So one of the things that the Turks did was um, oftentimes the fear of religious reactionaries coming back in and imposing Islam on Turkish society was used to mobilize constituencies that supported um Turkish secularism. And this was, the Turks referred to this as urtika or religious reaction. And we saw this mobilization pattern even under Ataturk in the 1930s, um, but it definitely sort of continues on. And what ended up happening in Turkey was, I would say, they, they generally pushed most of the Islamic believers in Turkey more toward radicalism uh, because they were using this extreme fear language such that any kind of public expression of Islam was, you know, backsliding to the bad old days. Um, and then I started looking, you know, comparing this also, you saw some of this in France after the French Revolution um, and connected with the French idea of laicite. So there is kind of this tendency among movements as they become more identified with secularism uh, and, and particularly a more aggressive form of secularism that wants to remove religion or any public expression of religion, at least uh, from the public square. Then you do start to see this kind of attempt to mobilize fear of religion uh, to to motivate secular constituents in opposition to their their political opponents. Um, and and Turkey is kind of the, the best example of that. But I would say you know France would be another example. And you know that did kind of get me wondering about some of the mobilization, particularly um, what I would call, what I would describe as the Handmaid's Tale discourse uh, in the United States over the past eight to ten years. Yeah, I mean, right now, President Trump, uh, the spokesperson in Biden, uh, Biden's camp is saying uh, former President Trump would be straight out of Handmaid's Tale, just what you said. Uh, why, why do you think they keep going back to this? Because what you just described seems to be exactly the mm -hmm. tactics that they are using here, use, trying to create a fear of religion and, and make that a a horrible thing that is a threat to democracy here in America and now they're trying to attach President Trump with that. The Handmaid's Tale, I would say, if you were looking at like a perfect piece of propaganda designed to motivate fear of religious reaction and, and sort of drive particularly um, secular women to the polls in, in reaction to that fear. I mean, The Handmaid's Tale was, was tailor-made for that. Um, you know, it portrays a, a very uh, misogynistic, theocratic, um, society. Um, it, it does it in ways that if you actually look at, at the text of what happens, uh, that, that twists strip scripture significantly in ways that none of the uh, so-called Bible-believing Christians that it portrays would, would countenance. Um, and it takes, you know, some, some very, I would say, perspectives that exist in the fringes of, um, you know, what I would call Christian Reconstructionism. And it takes them and, and even twists them um, to fit into this this kind of horror show. So um, it's it's apocalyptic for sure, um, but it fits in with that that approach that kind of mobilize the fear of secular, uh, you know, the, the secular fear of a religious reaction. Um, and then of course you have the production of The Handmaid's Tale as a TV show, which takes what's already there in the book and amplifies it even more. Um, and so I think. It, it, there's there's been a deliberate attempt to craft that into sort of a um, a narrative that's going to appeal particularly to uh, secular, educated, 
um, women who do not attend church and are not you know familiar with Christian belief to try to make sure that they're going to come out and vote uh, against President Trump and, and against any of his political allies. Dr. Nolte, let me play a clip for you. I'd love to get your reaction to this. This is of Heidi Prisbola's last night on uh, MSNBC. And she was listening to what she described as extremist Christian nationalism ideas. And I, I referenced a, a piece earlier in the program that she co-authored. But let me, let's play this clip, uh, clip four, and I'd love to get your reaction to this. We're talking about here not just isolationism, immigration. We're talking about ending same-sex marriage, abortion, reducing access to contraceptives, but also surrogacy, uh, no-fault divorce, sex education in public schools. Wow. Look, this, uh, this is designed uh, not only to rally the left to me, but also to intimidate and silence Christians. But give me your reaction. Well, my first reaction is you've got two separate issue sets there. Um, on the one, she talks about isolationism and opposition to immigration. And on the other, she talks about a series of what I would call family-oriented social conservative policies. Now, I want to go back to um, a book that I talked about before, Perry and Whitehead, which I have a lot of problems with. Um, but one of the things that I will say is that, although I think they asked the wrong questions, they did handle their data, I would say, with, with a degree of integrity, and they found some interesting stuff. Um, you can ask the wrong questions and still find some interesting things. And one of the things they found is that among people that have what I would call, again, the social conservative attitudes, which they code as Christian nationalism, but let's ignore that for a second and just code that as, as social conservatism. There was a diametric split between two groups of people, people that regularly attend church and people that don't regularly attend church. Among regular church attenders, they actually found less hostility toward those of different racial groups, toward immigrants, um, and, and toward those who I would say your white ethno-nationalists would regard as the other. Uh, there was less hostility toward those groups among those who regularly attend church. But there was more opposition to same-sex marriage, um, abortion. I don't know if they coded for surrogacy and no-fault divorce, but I think if they had, they would have found more opposition among that, that cohort. Now, among those who were socially conservative but did not attend church, what they found was the exact opposite. They were less conservative on what we call the family issues, and they're more conservative on issues, or, or more opposed, I would say, more negative toward those who have a different racial identity or are immigrants or so on and so forth. And so the data quite simply does not show a conflation between those issues. Yes, social conservatives can hold both of those groups, but it's two separate groups of social conservatives. And the ones that go to church are the ones that are less likely to actually um, have negative views of immigrants. Now, I don't know how that codes for isolationism or interventionism in foreign policy, but as a guy who studies foreign policy, I would say that's a complicated issue and people come to different views, views on that for a variety of reasons that might have nothing to do with social conservatism. Well, the, uh, among others, and that's one example that, that we just had and a great answer there, but uh, you've seen it, they're all after uh, Speaker Mike Johnson for his Christian faith, yeah, calling him a Christian nationalist and all this kind of horrible stuff. But I mean, he's a Christian statesman who is certainly influenced and guided by his faith. Uh, right. That's no different from the liberal left being guided by their secular or uh, wh whatever worldview that they embrace. So uh, what, what should our viewers and listeners keep in mind when these type charges of Christian nationalism pop up? I would say, particularly with reference to Speaker Johnson, you know, and I've done some research on him, just kind of looked into him, um, and I actually kind of 
wasn't surprised that he emerged as the consensus uh, choice. There's two things that I think everybody needs to understand about Mike Johnson. One is that everybody in the Republican caucus seems to like him. Which, which, as we all know from the, the speaker fight uh, last year, that in and of itself is an incredible feat, uh, and we should be impressed impressed by that. Uh, the other is, and, and this really galls the left. You know, Mike uh, Johnson has the unmitigated temerity to be a fairly conventional Southern Baptist, um, and what that means is that yes, he's quite conservative on family issues. Um, yes, he has. Um, you know, some some views that uh, people on the secular left would would be concerned about. But as a conventional Baptist, uh, he also stands in an over 200 year tradition of Baptists supporting religious liberty, going back to Baptists, um, you know, siding with Thomas Jefferson in, in the election of 1800 because of his support for religious liberty, uh, which is deeply ingrained into Baptist political thought. And Mike Johnson has put his money where his mouth is on that sense. You know, he worked for uh, the Alliance, what is now the Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, which are well, we got about 15 the... seconds, Dr. Nolte. And so what I would say about Re this is that a commitment to religious liberty, if somebody's truly committed to li religious liberty, you never have to worry about them imposing Christianity because they want your freedom. They want to protect your freedom to believe or not believe as you choose. And that's what you should know about Mike Johnson. Thank you, Dr. A.J. Nolte from Regent University. What an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for bringing your expertise to this discussion. All right, friends, that wraps up this edition of Washington Watch. Thank you for joining us. Uh, stay tuned for tomorrow and more of Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.